0: Hello and welcome to the reversing climate change podcast. I'm Ross Kenyon. We are back for season two of reversing climate change. It was a weird break because we put out a bunch of bonus episodes. Was that confusing? It may have been confusing if you were listening and wondering why we were doing that. But I didn't want to leave you totally in the lurch with nothing to listen to. And great shows were coming by that we could just give little nuggets to supply you with during the interim. But we are now back. We're doing full episodes again. Christoph, what did you do with your break? Was it good? Are you feeling feeling happy?
1: I had a great break. I spent some time in Minnesota looking after 23, what turned into 22 chickens in rural Minnesota. I felt like it was a big rite of passage having to take one down because it was sick. That was pretty
0: eventful. Oh, no. Good. Pretending to be a farmer. That's a fun thing that Nori Knots like to do occasionally. We. <laughs> You read some Wendell Berry, you hang out on a farm, and you get to talk like that for a while. One of the privileges of the job. Well, today we are so happy to have with us Jigger Shaw. He may know from his many activities and I will pass it to Christoph for a more formal introduction.
1: Yeah, I'm humbled to have Jigger on here. He is the president of Generate Capital and co-host of the Energy Gang. Jigger probably doesn't remember, but he gave a talk in 2013 when I was a grad student at Columbia University. And I was totally drinking his Kool-Aid then and was one of the nerds who ran up to the stage afterwards to try to say something smart and impress the guy. And at the time, I had been working with Klaus Lackner at the Lenfest Center for Sustainable Energy. And I wasn't an engineer. And I was like, here's an engineer turned finance guy. Maybe I can try to talk engineer. And I just read this paper called Small Modular Technology and was trying to relate the costs of the modular elements of solar technology coming down dramatically in cost and saying, well, what do you think about direct air capture having a similar potential cost drawdown when you're looking at deployment led innovation? And wouldn't it be cool if you were just using solar energy and carbon removal technologies and then converting that into useful fuels, blah, blah, blah. I think, Jigger, you probably don't remember, you said something nice. And then you're like, there are a bunch of people behind you next. (laughs) thank you for putting me in my spot here we are now we finally get you to come on to our podcast so it's really a delight to have you on here
2: (laughs) (laughs) I should answer I should answer that question again I think on this this yeah and wow hasn't direct air capture had a real
1: run of it since 2013 to 2020 we don't need to start (laughs) there but I think it would be useful for the audience to get a sense of maybe why are we so excited that you're on here and yeah maybe we're we sent you an outline but we'll probably just pick and choose of what we want to talk about from the outline as i keep doing this innovation or this introduction you know you have been credited with talking with doing a lot of work at sun edison not to be confused with sun power and in many cases we're sort of the grandfather of the ppa that's the power purchase agreement which was a way to unleash a lot of Capital. Um, you wrote a book or two along the way, which helped people look at some of these opportunities. But what's the path that took you to generate capital?
2: Wow, that's a long path. <laughs> I, you know, I started off in this industry as an engineer, and you know, when you have these small companies that you work for, you're sort of doing all the jobs, and one of the jobs I was doing was sales too, and you realize early on that the customers really don't want to buy the equipment we're selling. They really want to buy the service that comes from the equipment, right? So they want to buy wind power, not a wind turbine, right? They want to buy solar power, not a solar panel. And so what ends up happening is, is that I just sort of realized over time that people really wanted these sort of power purchase agreement solutions. And there really wasn't anybody out there that was really systematically capable of financing that stuff, right? You just weren't like even thinking about it and the folks who were doing project finance were minimum, you know, $100 million $200 million projects. They weren't really interested in doing a $800,000 project or even an $80,000 project. And so, you know, that's what led to the creation of Sun Edison. And then after I sold Sun Edison, I went to go to the Carbon War Room and we looked at all these different sectors and one of the things we realized was the same thing was true in all these other sectors whether it was Efficiency technologies for ships or fuel cells, or you know lots of things, and even though Sun Edison's business model was widely published, and in fact, you know NREL, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, and others had actually written papers on it, these other sectors really weren't copying what we learned at Sun Edison or in the wind industry and so so that's what led me to generate was I realized that all these other entrepreneurs could be helped by scaling up what we did in the solar and wind industries.
0: Indeed. And there there are so many things that you said in there, Jigger, that I want to establish the relationship between because when most people think about clean tech or clean power, they imagine that policy is driving a lot of this. Um, But the way that you speak about this with with Project Finance, which I'd like you to to define, but also it sounds like people are wanting to purchase this. This is a voluntary market-driven decision that people are making independently of policy, at least somewhat, what is the relationship between policy and market actors? Is that divide nearly as simple as people want to pose it?
2: Yeah, it's a great question, right? So I think you start with the end product, right? So the customer wants a certain service, right? Whether it's biochar, right? Or they want electric vehicles or whatever it is, right? And then there's a certain sensitivity that the customer is willing to tolerate. So they might say, well, I'll be willing to pay a 20% premium for that service because it's green and it's wonderful and it makes me feel better. Fine. But they're not willing to pay a 200% premium for it because that's just crazy. And so then, then you sort of start to figure out, well, where is this technology in the life cycle of the you know, deployment cycle, right? And part of that is determines whether you get a cheap interest rate. Right, So if the technology is really well understood, you get a much cheaper interest rate than if the technology is right out of the lab. And so as you crunch all those numbers, you realize there's a gap, right? And then policy steps in to fill that gap if it's in the best interests of the public, right? So if policymakers say, we should have a lot more electric vehicles, electric vehicles are too expensive, a $7,500 tax credit would help close that gap, well then, you know, they try to pass policy to do that. Um and the same things true with renewable portfolio standards or renewable energy credits or all sorts of other policy measures that we've had before. I mean, the most recent one that everyone's following is the low carbon fuel standard, you know, process in California, right? So so I think policy and market makers are related, but it usually starts with, you know, what are the customers' needs and, you know, what is the price point they really need to achieve to be able to see this market take off and the, you know, customers start to deploy the, the
0: technology. Does that necessarily have to take place at the level of purchase? We've had uh, Ramez Nam, who's one of our advisors on before. He's spoken so much about how solar became cheap. My understanding is that a large part of the story was large amounts of basic research in the R&D process that was funded by the government and went through these national labs um, that just made it so affordable. That was one way of, of subsidizing it without necessarily being at the point of purchase. Is there a good reason to choose one or the other to do these work in conjunction? How should we think about these broadly two approaches?
2: Yeah, these those two approaches are completely divorced from each other. And I find it so shocking that people link them. And Ramez is one of the smartest people I know. So I certainly don't want to step on his toes. But I think. Like, we fund lots of stuff, right? We fund, like, why do butterflies fly from Brazil to the United States? We fund, you know, like, advanced materials, Kevlar, all sorts of stuff. And a lot of these things have other spin-offs, right? So they can be used in material science, and then they can be used in battery storage, right? So there's lots of ways that basic R&D and then even practical R&D make it into production. But for most of the technologies, like solar, for instance... The solar panel has largely been stable and able to be scaled up since the 80s, right? So it's not like we needed to wait until the Japanese you know, 10,000 roof program in 1992 or the, the German subsidy programs in 1998. We could have scaled them up much sooner, but there just wasn't any policy will by which to do so, right? And so we ended up not providing the you know, policy support necessary to do so. And it wasn't like we weren't doing policy support. In the 1980s, we subsidized natural gas because we realized that that industry was a fledgling industry and needed a lot of financial support. So we were subsidizing energy, just not clean energy.
0: I really hope I didn't mischaracterize uh, uh, Mez there. Um, I hope I'm not expecting an angry email now. I think I, I got pretty close <laughs> to the mark. So, you I'm can sorry, find Mez. him on Twitter, so you don't have to get an email from him. <laughs> okay, yeah, you know, it sounds good. Uh, go ahead, Christoph. So I'm going to play dumb
1: for a second, but I'm still a little bit unclear on what is the connection between the power purchase agreement and project finance?
2: So project finance is, you know, basically a a financial transaction that happens in a vacuum, right? So basically when you think about buying an apartment building, that apartment building is in a vacuum. You buy the apartment building. If people rent from you, that's great. If rents go up, you make more money but you're not actually buying stock in the supplier of the cement or in the supplier of you know, the windows, or even in the development company that decided to develop the project, right? You, you're not an equity shareholder in a corporation that is growing and replicating the apartment buildings all across the world. You're only an investor in this particular apartment building, right? That's it. And that's what project finance is, right? So now you're a Investor in this project, this solar project, this wind project, this fuel cell, this biochar facility, like that actual facility. You're not separately investing through the the corporation or the LLC that, you know, sort of sponsored and developed the project, right? And so, so it's a different set of risk profiles. So by definition, because you're buying a specific project, there's no way to get a 100x return on your investment right? You get the return that you thought you were going to get if it performs well and it underperforms, then you get a slightly lower return, right? But you in general never believe unless you have a catastrophic failure that you're going to lose your money. Got it. That's helpful. And in your book, Creating Climate Wealth,
1: Unlocking the Impact Economy, I mean, effectively, you're talking about this $10 trillion wealth creating opportunity, which broadly speaking, whether that's investing in solar or other clean energy assets, you have innovative models like Project Finance, which are ultimately getting unlocked. And I was listening to the Energy Yang podcast a couple episodes ago, and you said this phrase, deployment-led innovation, which I think has something to do with that whole wealth-creating opportunity. But could you unpack that a little bit for us? What does deployment-led innovation mean in the context of financing projects?
2: So this goes back to the previous conversation we had about R&D, right? So R&D is hugely important. I just want to make sure everyone understands that. But what leads to cost reduction is deployment. And so there's this misnomer that the reason why carbon, you know, reducing technologies are not available at scale today is because they're not cheap enough. But that's actually not true. Like what solar and wind have proven and other sectors are now starting to follow is that you only get that cost reduction if you start deploying technology that works. And so solar panels you know, and solar projects were producing power at 50 cents a kilowatt hour in 1998. And the Germans put in a feed-in tariff at 50 cents a kilowatt hour. And everyone knows that 50 cents a kilowatt hour was more expensive than the power prices that people were paying at the time. And a lot of people said, well, if you just did more R&D, it would get cheaper. But that's simply not true. What made it cheaper was people deployed at $0.50 a kilowatt hour, and then someone said, well, actually, I think I can do better than that using this other technology or using this approach or using trackers or using software to design the system more efficiently, right? And so every year, the solar got cheaper by 5%, 8%, right, every year. And then that learning curve is what has now gotten us to $0.02 $0.02 cent per kilowatt hour solar in many parts of the world, right? But if you didn't invest in the first project's deployments, then you wouldn't have started this beneficial cycle of deployment-led innovation. You would just be simply doing R&D all day.
1: Yeah, that's really important. And it sort of speaks to the mantra that we try to breathe at Nori, which is learn by doing. And totally. And I think in general, that's how you figure things out. And you've been around the block in the clean tech world. You've spent a lot of time at Carbon War Room, which brought together many smart people trying to figure all this out. I'm sure you've seen a few failures and successes along the way. And what, as a probably one of the best pundits out there, in the last decade, would you say was the biggest failure and then biggest success in clean tech?
2: Well, I mean, I think the biggest failures are all the technologies that you know fundamentally you know weren't really worth deploying at scale that were deployed right so there were a lot of dead ends that we knew were dead ends at the time that we continued to move on right so these are things like solar thermal electric plants tidal and you know sort of ocean wave technologies right if you take all of the tidal and ocean potential in the world it still like is going to produce less than a few percentage points of total global energy right they it and then you know putting that kind of technology in salt water, you're just begging for you know components that fail early, right, and so you can never see that being cost effective without subsidies, like there's just no way to get it there, so I think the biggest failures were us investing in the deployment of technologies where you could tell that just the fundamental physics of the technology wasn't capable of getting to. A certain, you know, sort of level of competitiveness. The biggest success stories probably, you know, I mean, obviously solar and wind are big ones, but probably one of the biggest ones are lithium ion batteries, right? I mean, they were ubiquitous in laptops and phones before 2010. And, you know, I think when we started using them in electric vehicles, you started seeing a dramatic increase in the production of lithium ion cells, and that's dropped the cost of
0: lithium ion batteries by an enormous amount. Why do you think that technologies that shouldn't have been scaled up and deployed were? Do you think that there was political reasons for doing so? Or were people just a bit Pollyanna? Or was it just throwing everything at the wall and and hoping something would stick? What, What happened there?
2: Yeah, I think that in general, there's a political aspect to some of this stuff, which is totally fine. And so you end up with a lot of people who say, hey, if you want your project to get policy support, then you have to support my project. Uh, Or my technology. And so, you know, some of the other big failures were the, you know, integrated gasification technologies that were, you know, championed by Texaco back, you know, in 2010. And these were, you know, the Kemper plant in Mississippi and some of those other plants, right? Like those were clearly never going to be cost effective or profitable, right? And they turned out to be just huge boondoggles, right? And so, but that was a political trade-off that the Obama administration made right uh, during the stimulus bill and other things. They were like, well, you need to give some of this money to this technology. Otherwise, you can't give it to the other technology.
0: Wow. So just log rolling, basically. Yeah, totally. Okay. That's a, a bit depressing, but I guess that's at least a, it's a better explanation than just people were irrational and deployed stuff that clearly wouldn't have worked from the outset for you know fundamental technological reasons. So that's at least reassuring, I guess. Yeah if you're a bit cynical.
1: so I've got a good reason to be cynical because he brought up Kemper. I actually got to visit that facility in 2014 on the research experience in carbon sequestration right after graduation. Mm-hmm. And I remember the day we were in a room with a bunch of executives from Southern Power Company and Lisa Jackson, who at the time was the administrator of the EPA, had just announced this clean power rule. And the smirks of the executives in Southern Power that's like, yeah, we're not going to do anything. This isn't actually going to affect us. And what the rule was is sort of a certain interpretation of the Clean Air Act saying, you know, we need to reduce our greenhouse gas gas content by a certain percent. They basically said our strategy is to sue the government. And so it just honestly, of all the different signals that pushed me away from the carbon capture and storage field into one that's more looking at carbon capture from land-based. That was pretty monumental in my journey. There's no question there. I just felt like sharing it. And I cut you off, Ross, so go ahead.
2: No, no, I think that's that's a really interesting anecdote. And it it is true, right? And I don't know that it's unexpected, right? There's certainly a lot of people who work in the traditional energy field who feel threatened by the changes that are coming. And I could see them taking that strategy. I certainly don't think that that's the permanent view of, of everyone. I think that you see a lot of folks now realizing that climate change is real and that, you know, whether it's mechanical ways of sequestering carbon or whether it's, um, you know, more terrestrial and natural ways of sequestering carbon that we've got to figure that out.
1: Yeah, totally. And it sets up very nicely the next question that I actually wanted to ask, which is increasingly, I think perhaps at a rate that executives couldn't have even expected, there's a pressure coming from society that says, if you want a license to operate, you need to do something about your emissions. And even on the Energy Gang podcast, you guys refer to this as a social license to operate. And we've obviously seen amazing momentum coming from a lot of the youth. Um, Greta Thunberg has been a great spokesperson in this space. But what does it mean to have a social license to operate as, let's just say, a large company who emits a significant amount of carbon in the year 2020?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think it's one of those things where it can be as simple as you can't slow down the implementation of climate solutions within your own footprint anymore just because you're busy, right? It used to be that lots of things were identified that saved people money. And They, you know, now are saying, well, we're too busy, right? And now I think people are saying, well, you can't be too busy. You better put the resources behind getting it done because BlackRock and others have spoken. And if you're not doing the basics, then you really don't have a social license anymore to continue to ask for things from your local city or your local state or other things because you're not being a good citizen, Right. And then to the point where it could be even bigger, right? So, like Lyft and Uber, for instance, like there's tons of data now that shows that they create massive amounts of additional traffic and congestion. And now also a lot of ground level emissions, which, you know, kill 53,000 people a year in, you know, lung disease and other things, according to the American Lung Association. So, At some point, they are going to have to switch to electric vehicles. And if they don't, cities are going to say, you're not allowed to operate here unless you switch to electric vehicles, right? Now, they're still going to produce traffic and congestion, but at the very least, they're not killing people with ground level emissions, right? And so you start to see that the social license for a lot of these companies is dependent upon their seriousness around, you know, their deploying clean energy technologies. Clearly, the IT companies have had this huge problem you know, since Greenpeace went after them all 10 years ago. And now they're all realizing that, yeah, their social license is dependent upon them not building data centers that are just using grid power, but they actually have to supplement that power with clean energy to make sure that they're offsetting their emissions footprint, right? And you see Microsoft making that huge announcement that it even includes carbon sequestration and, you know, hopefully the whole company going carbon negative on a cumulative basis from the beginning of their company.
0: Why do you think all of this is changing now, Jigger? Do you think that people are having a change of heart? Are they realizing now that it's just urgent? Or is it just that they recognize that either their voters or their customers are demanding this and will increasingly demand this of companies to be environmental stewards who are climate hawks? Is that just the trend that everything is going, I, I'm pretty sure that's what's going, at least from where I sit.
2: Yeah, like I totally agree with your assessment. And It's sort of all of the above. But the one thing I would say is that, I mean, and obviously I'm biased, but I think that one of the reasons why they're doing it is because they've had such an extraordinary experience, positive experience with solar and wind. And so I think a lot of them took increasingly larger amounts of risk around signing billion-dollar contracts. And those contracts were done extraordinarily professionally. And, you know, in large part saved companies a lot of money. And so I think a lot of the CFOs and others have said, you know what, that experience went well, we're willing to hear pitches in other areas, because we think that there are credible counterparties in all these other areas that, you know, can bring us up the curve, just like the solar and wind guys did.
0: So in your mind, it isn't just uh, CEOs and CFOs twirling their mustaches and and, uh, wiping and polishing their monocles. That's not the reason why? It's about risking billion-dollar <laughs> contracts. That's been the holdup.
2: I do think the mustache wax is coming back, right? So uh, so that that could be the case. <laughs> but no, I mean, I do think that in general, the supply chain matters, right? So a lot of these folks don't really want to solve the fundamental problems, right? They just want to sign a contract. So they want to say, great, we signed a net zero waste contract. Who wants to take our waste? Great, we'll pay you to take our waste. Here's the tip fee. And now go put it in a digester, right? And so Generate Capital is the largest owner of food waste digesters in the US. But like, and so we make it easy for these companies. But if they had to then, you know, go to Italy and Germany and figure out what technology to put in and then hire an engineering firm and put it in themselves, you could imagine them maybe not deploying at speed and scale because it's just not their core competency. So clearly, I mean, you've
1: played a role in seeing a huge scale in the clean tech space. And I'm not even sure if you would categorize carbon sequestration or carbon removal as a subset of that space, but let's just set them aside for a second. Sure. The water's warm. Yeah. Come on Where's, in. So carbon removal is part of clean tech, but where are the parallels to, let's just call it clean energy and pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere from a deployment-led innovation perspective?
2: Well, so I think that it's very clear that putting soil back into the carbon is something that people have been doing for 20 years, right? Regenerative agriculture in a more formal sense. I'm sure they've been doing it for centuries, but in terms of from a more formal sense, there've been people studying it through the U.S. Department of Agriculture. There's like all sorts of folks like the Rodale Institute and others who've been sort of like writing white papers and figuring this out, right? And so there's all these co-benefits of putting carbon in the soil, et cetera, right? And so people have been trying to categorize it and figure it out and what's the protocols and how do we determine how much carbon they've sequestered in the soil. And so now that a lot of that stuff is, you know, is completed, right? And it's in 1.0, so it's a functional system, right? Now the question is like, well, who's going to buy all these credits, right? (laughs) Like now that we've created all these credits, who's going to buy them, right? And so that's the That's the similarities within the power purchase agreement structure is getting people to say, well, we'll buy the credits. And in exchange, like we'll actually even maybe pay for the credits before they're completely generated to help the farmers actually get paid to change their practices to create more credits, right? And so you start to get this beneficial cycle. And then at some point, the cost of everything goes down. The transaction costs go down, the ability to actually do the um sequestration by the farmers goes down, you start to get support not just from, you know, nonprofits, but also from like folks like Monsanto and others say, actually we want in this game. And they start, you know, providing services to help their farmers do this. Right. And that that is how this works, right? Is you you end up with 2.0 and 3.0 and 4.0 and the costs come down. And now the volume of credits goes up and the buyers buy more of it because they're at a more affordable price. And you start to see these sort of beneficial cycles.
1: That's such a beautiful setup for where I want to take this conversation next. And maybe just to explain a little bit about what Nori does or how crazy we are that we think we're able to do this. But effectively, we're new kids on the block and administering a carbon market. And what that means is that we help what we call suppliers, which is really anyone who can remove carbon dioxide, generate a unique asset, which represents one ton of CO2 removed, plus or minus 10%, and retained for a minimum of 10 years. And then in looking at all of the challenges within carbon markets, and ultimately it comes down to, how do you do the carbon accounting? We have developed an approach that is not bespoke to Nori, but very much we're standing on the shoulders of giants and using USDA tools, and have a system that basically is first in line to run a bunch of data through an application programming interface of a USDA platform called Comet Farm that creates an estimation and quantification around which we can issue these sellable assets. So whether it's an NRT, which is a Nori carbon removal ton, or a VCU, which comes from the verified carbon standard, or a CRT, which is the Climate Action Reserve carbon reserve ton, it's all alphabet soup. But in the end of the day, it opens the opportunity for project financiers to show up and tell farmers, hey, if you can make this alphabet soup, I'll provide you some upfront financing. And now start to take on some of the risk or share in some of the risk on the projected returns that you might have in selling this asset. So I'm curious because we're in our infancy and we're right now in pilot phase and we've sort of done a proof of concept, and we're quickly enrolling farmers into our platform to help sell these NRTs. it's worth noting for if you're going to sell carbon removal, you can only sell carbon that's already been pulled out of the atmosphere. But we want those trillions of dollars which are slosh- sloshing around to go to accelerate the drawdown of carbon to the atmosphere. So clearly that requires project finance. But what is the most intelligent way to basically set up the financial infrastructure? so that the project financiers such as yourself want to come play.
2: Well, I think that we start with smaller numbers. You know, the problem with trillion dollar scale is that, you know, like people sometimes get sucked into trillion dollar thinking and you really need to think about million dollar thinking and 10 million dollar thinking first. And so then the question really becomes what does it take to create the behavioral change and the the you know sort of permanence that the credit buyers want to see within this process right so you might want to actually pay the farmers over time right for the carbon that they've sequestered as opposed to paying them up front right you may want to actually give the farmers a loan for uh providing all of the extra you know services and changes in in behavior to sequester the carbon and then pay off the loan with the carbon credit sales and then you know, and then give them whatever's left over after the after the loan is repaid, right? So there's, there's lots of structures that we can identify that we could use, but I think the key to it is to figure out what does it take to go from, you know, 25,000 acres or 100,000 acres or a million acres to 70 million acres, right? Like what is it, what kind of infrastructure do we need to pay for to get that level of change and how do we make sure that all the incentives are aligned so no one you know, gets paid without providing the service. Yeah,
1: totally. And I really appreciate you saying, slow your roll, Christoph. Don't talk to me about trillions until you can even talk about thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. And from our perspective, we're still enrolling farm by farm, field by field. In some cases, that's 40 acres at a time. And figuring out how to build software that just makes it easy to accept and enroll that data.
2: Yeah, and that's totally normal.
1: Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, the hard work is actually not the financing or necessarily the software geekiness that we're building to make this open and transparent, but it's the work that the farmers need to do in taking on new farming decisions that they've never done before, whether that's like financing for a new piece of equipment, like a roller crimper, so you're rolling over cover crops so that your roots can stay longer and you can plant into those or even funding the technical assistance providers who can be helping inform some people on how might they transition in a certain geography. And as soon as we start going down that road, then things look super, I mean, it's just no longer monolithic in the same way that you're funding a simple solar project and you can look at risk in the same way. And so I'm just curious to now point at. I asked you a little bit on the similarities, but to look at the differences from specifically regenerative agriculture, from assessing risk and trying to enter this space as a project financier?
2: Yeah. So I actually think that it's easier in some ways, right? Because reaching farmers is something the government has done for years. And so the policy part of this is actually pretty straightforward, right? Once you prove that the market actors are capable of doing all the tasks that you described, then it's actually pretty easy to go to the politicos and saying, hey, we'd like to pay farmers for, you know, sequestering carbon as opposed to paying them off for our bad trade practices. And, you know, a lot of politicians are like, that's a good idea. That makes farmers feel more empowered as opposed to the, you know, like payoffs they're getting for the trade practices, which makes them feel disempowered. And so the policy part of this, I think, is going to be a lot easier than it was in the electricity space. The harder part is obviously the verification, because as you describe, the verification really is not something that's fully automated and, and as easy as it was in solar, right? In solar, we had a GE sort of bubble meter that was invented decades ago that we could use as the determinative way that we could calculate how many kilowatt hours were actually going into the store and we could charge for those. Here, you're not really going to do physical soil sample tests for every single acre. You're going to use, you know, color discoloration and LIDAR and like all sorts of other approaches. You might even use statistical sampling to, you know, to benefit from it, but you're never going to be as accurate as we were in, you know, solar and wind. And then the permanence piece is another problem, right? Even though you can sequester soil, uh, carbon in the soil, once you get to you know, 10% sequestration, my sense is is that, you know, you start to see that the soil is not going to go to 100% carbon. And so there is like some sort of place where, you know, you guys have done what you can do in terms of sequestering carbon. And so like, that's the other piece of this is the permanence is harder to define here.
0: Christoph, you can't just invite luminaries on and ask for free advice about Nori. I think I just
2: got it though.
0: (laughs)
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm tempted to take the bait and explain a little bit more how Nori does verification, but I'll save that just to say it's really important to recognize that soil carbon goes up and down based on things that no one can control, which is the weather. Like If it's raining a lot, or if you have a drought, you're going to lose soil carbon or gain it. And so what we need as a marketplace and creating a market in the instrument, which is the NRT, we need to be sure that we isolate for additionality and practice-based additionality while focusing on those outcomes. So it's basically saying, how can we ensure that what we're able to line up to are those additional things, whether it's the adoption of cover crops or the addition of certain stimulants or microbes that can sequester more carbon or the reduction of tillage, all these different things, and then isolate for that dynamic baseline. Bottom line is, it's tricky. It's fun that more people are thinking about it. We like thinking about it with all of these people. I think there's a way to get it right. But unlike sort of the exactitude to the however many decimal points of how many clean kilowatt hours or megawatt hours you're creating, um, you can only have uncertainty ranges of diminishing amounts when it comes to soil carbon. You can't actually measure it. So it's how do you estimate it and then have something that's good enough and in the right direction so that people who are doing that work can monetize the outcome.
2: Yeah, and there's lots of other areas where this is a feature, right? So, you know, like a lot of the anaerobic digesters that we own, you know, they're enormously operationally intensive, right? And, you know, the quality of the feedstock that comes in can vary. And, you know, the way the bacteria operates uh, differs based on the feedstock quality. And then so you've got all of these variables that go in, right? And you get to best practices. So I don't think this is an impossible task. I think it's just, you know, different than solar and wind.
0: Well, Jigger, I saw that there was a very big announcement regarding a figure that is just a beautiful figure, $1 billion. I like saying it. I like thinking about it. And now that I see that <laughs> you are able through Generate Capital, you raise this money for the purpose of renewable energy infrastructure development. What exactly are you using that money for? Congratulations. And what do we have to look forward uh, from you in the future?
2: That's right. This is where you cue, you know, bare naked ladies. It's like, if I had a billion dollars, <laughs> oh God. Yeah. Um, didn't even think of that. But like, <laughs> I was thinking of Austin Powers
1: <laughs> but, with Doctor Evil.
2: Uh, <laughs> Doctor Evil. That's good. Um, yeah. Look, I mean, we're gonna do a lot more of the same, right? So I think that we have always been in the business of supporting entrepreneurs, changemakers, corporations who are deploying climate solutions and resource solutions, right? And the goal for us is to figure out a way to scale them up, right? And we don't take technology risk. There's certainly a lot of companies out there who are representing technologies that are uh, have been in use for 10, 20 years, but they've just never seen the commercial success or, or financiers focus on them, right? Fuel cells is one big area that we have positions. Same thing's true for anaerobic digesters we talked about or electric vehicle buses. But the other areas is just business model innovation, right? There's just been a lot of barriers in the way of getting energy efficiency deployed. And so figuring out how to fund these new models that have come out from PACE financing to meets financing that Seattle City and Light are doing to um you know other sort of types of ESCO financings that are unique and different, right? And so what you find is there's a lot of people out there who have good ideas and most of the financing shops they sort of give people like a half an hour to explain themselves. And Generate actually sits there and says, you know what, we're going to give you 10 hours to explain yourself. We know what you're doing is super complicated. Let's actually sit down and really understand it. And then we can tell you whether it's possible to put it into a project finance model or whether it's just not possible and you really just need more expensive corporate dollars because you have a lot of merchant risk, for instance, or you just have technology risk that we can't quantify.
0: Great. Well, that's fantastic to hear. I... I'm sure our listeners are enthused by that too. Uh, if someone wanted to follow your work, what do you think is the best way for them to do so? Well, there's certainly
2: a lot on generatecapital.com. Uh, if they want to follow my writing specifically, I have a pretty robust set of articles on LinkedIn. And so just look me up on LinkedIn. But um, but yeah, no, I'm I'm super excited about where we're headed, and the number of change makers out there that are pushing the envelope here is just at an all-time high. And so I'm pretty bullish that we're going to figure out how to really scale up here. I think, you know, generate capital plays a small role in getting that done. But so does, you know, all the investors that support uh, the individual companies directly.
0: Absolutely. And you also are very active on, on Twitter and your podcast with your co-hosts. The Energy Gang is very good and worth a listen if you haven't already. Clearly, you like podcasts if you're listening to this one. So you should add that one to your repertoire. Thank you for being here with us.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for the, all the great work you're doing and spreading the message.
0: Absolutely. Anything you want to add there, Christophe, Or Are you content?
1: I'm content. I'm very happy with how this podcast went. I'll give a shout out to a quote on Jigger's profile picture on LinkedIn, which is, if you don't find a way to earn while you sleep, you'll work till you die. And I remember in thinking about some of the early ideas around Nori, it's like, how can we just create a carbon removal marketplace that's making money passively? So thank you for that inspiration, Jigger.
2: (laughs) Anytime. As you know, that's a Warren Buffett quote, but uh, I'm happy to take credit for promoting it.
0: Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us for the first episode of season two of reversing climate change. We should be back weekly from now on or mostly weekly. Um, we try to keep that weekly cadence going every Tuesday morning. If you like what we're doing, tell a friend, rate and review us on Apple podcasts or on Stitcher. And thank you so much for listening.